Hey everyone, this is Matt Rail. Welcome to episode one of Sitting Dockside Podcast. Today we're going to talk about lake habitat. Have you ever wondered if habitat can increase the amount of fish in your lake? Have you ever wondered, do I have enough spawning habitat? Or is that vegetation out there too much or not enough? Well, all these questions are going to get answered by the expert, Dr. Brian Grab. I found this guy fascinating. He's tagged thousands of walleye and found out where they went, how they got there. He even tagged a largemouth bass and followed it for over one year, every single day, seeing what habitat it used, augmented habitat, and how much it actually needed to increase its growth. Glad you're with us. Come sit with us, Dockside. Welcome to Sitting Dockside. This podcast is for people who dig ponds and lakes as much as we do. On this podcast, we're going to bring the most knowledgeable people from all over the country. Talk about wildlife, fisheries, lake construction, lake management. Sit them down, hang out, and just talk some shop. I'm your host, Matt Rail. I've been working with lakes and ponds for over 20 years. And during that time, I've picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake and pond owners all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles for your kids and grandkids off your lake, or how to grow some memories off your pond, then come sit with us, sitting dockside. Matt Rail, PWNRA. Got Brian Greb with me from South Dakota State, PhD, graduated from South Dakota State, worked over a decade uh, in fishery management. Not only that, does wrote over 60 papers on on fishery work and management strategies and implied management strategies and the industry so uh not just on you know on on different things but actually how we do things and how we should start to manage things you know he's tagged over 50,000 walleye so uh swimming around out there so um but then also he, he's done work on perch, which we've done a little bit of talk on a little bit earlier on baby fish. And now we're working on, but this newer science about fishery habitat and you've done some work now up North. We just talked about now we're heading down South to a lot of work you've done down on largemouth bass in Texas. And, and you've had some grad student at a, at a lake that I went with, with, with Bob Lusk and actually tagged some fish there, you know, years ago. You actually put a grad student there and then done some really cool stuff there with habitat because this is a question I would say every single customer gets to at one time. is like, do I put this PVC tree in front of my dock? Do I put this here? I have a Christmas tree. Do I, will it help if I put it out or, you know, do I need more structure out there? So this is going to answer a ton of those questions and it is new breaking research, right? And, and, uh, so we'll hear it from the horse's mouth. I'm pretty excited about this. No, thanks, Matt. And I, I have I didn't to, mean uh, to call you a horse, by the way. <laughs> I took it as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I have to, you, you talked a lot about, you know, tagging 50,000 walleyes, publishing 60 papers. That's almost entirely because I've recruited some of the most talented grad students on the planet 
they get to do all the field work, have all the fun. I do a lot of editing and, and trying to bring more money in, but I, I got to give them tons of credit for helping to keep this whole thing going. And you mentioned Bob Lusk and we, you know, there's a lot, him, he had, he's been involved throughout this and, you know, collaborating on the research and other Great researchers. Guy. So there's, there's a little, a lot of smart people smarter than I am that have, you know, all contributed and helped shape this research. So it's, it's very much a, a big team effort. Great. Great. So tell us about some habitat, Brian. Well, every time we start this and I teach this in class and talk to folks out in the field, you know, you got to define habitat. Um, there's all kinds of, of biological and in the fisheries world, there's several legal definitions. Um, but really it comes down to an almost an all encompassing physical and biological components required to support fish growth, survival and reproduction. So it's, it's this broad blanket, um, covers everything. Um, but that's an important point I want people to talk about. We're going to quickly jump off into structural habitat, you know, physical and biological features within a lake, but water quality, um, depth, latitude you know all these things have roles in in water quality or in, in sorry in habitat so um just well, want to point that out the definition of your habitat is not to increase my catch ratio in front of my dock that's in no. <laughs> it does not have that in your it is actually that you are it, you, with your what you're defining habitat is here is that it is supporting more fish it's actually uh, it, the, the physicality of that habitat supports the survival, supports the growth, or allows them get big enough, or increases the reproduction. So, just to access that point where you're just you're spot on. In fact, there's another layer of complexity. It's it's at multiple life stages. So, the habitat required for larval fish is much different from that required for juvenile fish which in a lot of cases is much different from that required for adult fish. Same species, largemouth bass in this case, but each life stage has different habitat requirements. And we try to take all that into account when we're, when we're thinking about these things. But yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's, it's a habitat isn't just a piece of something you throw in the lake. It's, it's, it's all encompassing and, and, and the best definitions and the best way to think about it is really targeted at different life stages and um, physical or biological parts of that. But you brought up, I think the, I've done a lot of work. I, I had the great pleasure a few years ago when I, I, I accidentally fell into the world of fish habitat. It wasn't on my radar screen. I was working on fish recruitment, growth, mortality, and harvest, and angling, and, and um, all kinds of other things. And, and habitat was always something that we, we had learned about. It was taught. I taught it, and we really didn't pay much attention to it. And I would, I would argue in the fisheries world, um, it's probably – are the weakest part of what a fishery is, you know, habitat, human users, and biota and and habitat is we have the least amount of uh, information on. Mm. So I I stumbled into it um, with some old reservoirs and where I was forced to have to look at habitat. And we started to ask some different questions, but my point in all that is I I had the, I had a blast going through the old literature. I'd spent just a couple months reading papers whenever I could. And, and for about, um, 40, 50 years now, the raging debate, you've already alluded to it, but the raging debate in fishery science, fisheries management, 
um, pond management, fisheries literature is this whole idea of attraction versus production. So if you do a habitat project, you put trees, rocks, stumps, you make it lake deeper, you do whatever you're going to do, you're going you're gonna to fix, you're going to change something within that system, right? And oftentimes we, we've gotten really good at, at designing and putting in habitat that will attract fish. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. We can do that all day long. But the idea or the question comes down to as well, you know, throwing a couple Christmas trees or artificial habitat off a boat dock, they're going to be, I've seen it, they'll be fishing there within a couple hours, um, particularly if there's not much habitat available in the lake. But if you really change the lake um, on a small scale, probably not. So it's, you know, getting to that level of production is is where we want to go with the research. So really simple way to think about it. You know, if you have, imagine this is our pond with um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine bass. We put a tree out there. Well, we know that that tree, particularly one that looks like this, is going to be highly appealing to bass. So if we go out and we electrofish or we angle right on that tree, we're gonna, it's, it's going to be a raging success story. There's going to be a lot of fish there. But all we've done in this case is we've attracted the fish already in the population to congregate around that tree, uh, which is a good thing if you're trying to increase angling opportunities and things like that. But, you know, really hasn't gotten to the root of actually improving habitat. You've just put some stuff in to attract fish to an area. So when we talk about habitat and, and the science we've done and the questions we're asking, we're trying to get to the point where, you know, we put in habitat and we get some sort of increase in production. So in this case, we put in multiple trees and then we go out and measure it. And now we have more fish or we have bigger fish or we have, you know, the same, the same age fish, but now they're growing like crazy. Some sort of increase in the, the productivity of that system. Um, and that could be through increased recruitment. It can be through increased growth um, or in a case of a small fish, decreased um, or increased survival through reduced predation risk. So there's lots of ways that that can happen. And, and, and I think the, the main take home of this, it's, it's probably just an issue of, of scaling. I, th- I think for years we got hung up on this debate and we were really careful in scientific literature to not go too far on saying habitat was successful. And there's a lot of biologists to this day that call habitat improvement projects, fish attracting, you know, they're putting out fish attractors, not they're not putting out fish habitat. Um, and this, it's because of this debate. And so uh, myself and, and some other folks who kind of taken this whole question and flipped it around and said, well, we know that if you have enough habitat, you're going to have, you're going to have a profound effect on the population. It's, you just look at a brand new lake that's built or a new reservoir. We get this reservoir effect. We get this pulse of nutrients come up and the fishery takes off and it's as, you know, it's going to have as much productivity about that eight to 12 year period as it's ever going to have within the lifespan of that reservoir. So back when we had a lot of habitat, we had a lot of productivity and if we, you know, lose habitat, we lose productivity. So if we had it once, we should be able to get it back with adding more habitat. Yeah, we have a reservoir right down the street. They worked on the dam for two years and it's now five years later, we're seeing the repercussions of, of a great fishery returning just for that small, you know, small amount of time that they allowed some, a little bit of habitat to return now. And, uh, but when you're saying here is, uh, well, first off, recruitment for you guys out there means reproduction. So re- repro- increased reproduction and growth is out there for us to understand that. But what you're saying with this is that you're, 
you're putting a lot of different structures throughout the entire lake actually changing. You're actually seeing by just adding habitat that you're seeing more and better fish was it looks like in this image, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's the idea. You add enough of it and you're going to, you're going to increase, you're going to have more of them. They're going to be bigger. Um, yeah. Some sort of increase in productivity. Okay. So let me talk about how we we came at this question. So if this if this is a given, the next uh, the next question that comes up is, well, how much habitat do I need to put into it, like to actually yep. get this effect? So we we came up with some way to how do we link habitat quantity to some form of population dynamics, recruitment, growth, mortality. Thanks for explaining recruitment. Typically. You know, it's it's spawning and, and surviving to about a year old. You know, they got to make it through several little bottlenecks, but it all comes back to spawning and, and getting through there. Yeah. Um, I want to stop you here because there should be a drum roll. Because we have, we have wanted to know this question. We've thought we've kind of known the range, but you're the first person to be able to actually empirically bring this to the table and really narrow that number down. So if there was a, if I had a drum, I'd be playing it right now because <laughs> how much habitat do we need is important. And then you have data to prove this. So uh, just to tell everybody out there how important you know, <laughs> this question is. That's a big buildup. Um, yeah. <laughs> we haven't proved it and we don't do that in science, but we have pretty good idea about it. Um, yeah. But our question, how much do you need for, in our case, our productivity's growth, drum roll, you know, we started at 20%. Now, we came up with that 20% number. That's, there's some studies out of Illinois, South Dakota. My old advisor, Dave Willis, did a great one, and uh, Texas, actually, on vegetation coverage in a lake and largemouth bass growth, reproduction, recruitment. And that 20% to 40% range kept popping up. It was a consistent number in there. So we said, well, if, if that's what's needed for vegetation and younger fish, then if we're looking at structural complexity and older fish, that seems like a good number to start off with. So we did a field experiment. We took uh, uh, one of our long-term research lakes. You mentioned the grad student in Texas. We've actually had two grad students, a PhD and a master's student working on this. And we, we went in and we... We figured there was somewhere between four, five, six, seven percent of the lake that was in pretty decent quality habitat. So we added enough more to get us up to about 20 percent. Um, and then we intensively monitored the response of the lake for a couple years. And then now about four more years on top of that. Um, and our habitat treatment, because we wanted it to be permanent, you know, we came up with this idea of a fish city. So a fish city, you know, we put... And this one consists of 17 different pieces of structural habitat. You have, you know, you have tall structures out in deep water. You have high density structures in the middle structures that act as corridors to get from near shore to offshore into the middle of the complex, low density structures on the outside. We tried to have a whole diverse array of different types of structures within this thing, all of it acting together as one unit. So this is one fish city, one treatment. And in that 100-acre lake, we put out 23 of these um, spread out across the lake. So 20 of the, 23 of these as treatments. And by doing that, the impact we made, we figured we, we, we impacted about 13% of the shoreline. So 
that's how the science, that's how we tried to standardize this and then, and then track it. And I just want to show a couple of results. So Mm -hmm. the next drum roll, did it work? Well, we had several years of pre-habitat growth was really, really poor. And the first couple growing seasons after putting us in growth shot up, um, dramatic increase across all sizes. It was really quick, very quick. And it was within one growing season, we started to see responses. And the cool part is this wasn't just an artifact of the data. We started all of a sudden seeing consistently, you know, nine. And we finally broke 10 pounds at the end of that first growing season after the habitat. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just some of the data and statistics in here. We we got to see this by the presence of larger fish. So it, it was good to see that on both sides of it. Um, so yeah, growth rates increase. And so for us, this was our measure of productivity. Um, we're producing more biomass, more flesh of largemouth bass by improving habitat. And I'll talk about why in a minute, but some of the other things that popped out of this, uh, prey abundance, we tracked seasonally, um, Dorosoma, which is the shad species, gizzard and threadfin and Lipomus, majority of it's bluegill, but there's also a few red ears and, um, occasional warm mouth and uh, red breast sunfish, but the vast majority of this is bluegill, but we lumped them into Lipomus. So before that dotted line, so spring, summer, fall, spring, fall, 2013 through 2014, we're bounced along a relative abundance. This is electrofishing catch punit effort of, you know, for Lipomus, it was, you know, 30, 50, maybe up to a hundred bluegill per hour of electrofishing. After the end of the first season, after putting the habitat in, everything shot up. So bluegill, by the fall of that first growing season, had more than doubled from anything we'd seen previously, and they they stayed doubled. You know, we're getting up in the Why? 500s. Well, one of the one of the hypotheses that that came out, and a lot of people asked this question at the start, was if you know one of the ways habitat works is is protection of young fish. So. We think that, you know, it's, it's spawning bluegills, the young get in the middle of this, this habitat structure, and that it reduces their predation when they're really, really tiny. And if mm-hmm. you can reduce the predation rate when they're that small and there's bazillions of them in a lake, you can have a pretty profound increase in their eventual recruitment into the fishery. So, so you're um, saying they're able to get big enough to to be sexually mature to have eggs, but before then, there was no place to hide. You are just by the time you're a teenager, you're gone. Right. And, uh, in eight is what you're saying. Well, they weren't gone. Our, our catch rates beforehand weren't that bad. I mean, a hundred bluegill per hour of electrofishing is, it's not great, but it's not, it's not, they were out there. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. They were just, they were, the predation rate was much, much greater. We think now this is some speculation on this part and there's some other folks in Oklahoma that have, seen similar things. So we're feel pretty good about that. It has something to do with reduced predation risk. Um, okay. And like I said, just tiny fractions of changes in predation rate can have huge effects on survival down the road. And I'm going to get asked, what is other prey? Just out of curiosity. Oh, it, it was uh, primarily other invertebrates. So we had some, we had quite a bit of crayfish in there. Um, Dragonflies, damselflies, oh, some flies, mayflies. Yeah. Um, it included three turtles, 
um, four or five snakes. Um, oh, and and then you know this because they're you're taking. We, like, we, and when I say we, I mean the grad students pumped. This is a four year diet study. One of the longest diet studies I've ever seen for bass, different sizes, all the seasons, they were pumping stomachs, um, sometimes hundreds, many hundreds of stomachs per season to get enough data to work with. So yeah, we'd catch a fish, bring it up, pump water down their stomachs, make them regurgitate the food and capture it in the sieve and you know, preserve it, take it back to the lab and try to reconstruct what it was in the diet. <clears throat> <laughs> but the fish is okay too. The fish, the fish were just fine. They, they yeah, were they just, a little uh, emptier after we were done with them. But. Yeah, just a little hungry <laughs> after that. So this is actually data from their stomachs. Yes. Okay. All right. And uh, so you, and you I'm have... Sorry. This, this here isn't data from their stomach, but I'm about to show you that in a minute. But okay. we did... We did uh, um, data from their stomachs. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here, this is all prey. Let's see. I think, I think this was just fish prey. So consumption. This is actually measuring individual fish's diets, taking that diet, weighing it, weighing the fish, um, oh. making it kind of a specific standardized con- um, comparison. So it's basically an index of stomach fullness, how much the fish is consuming. So, and the, these are small, the scale is pretty small and the differences are pretty small. But the thing with consumption is energetically small changes in consumption have huge effects on fish because cold blooded, you know, they're, their energetic demands aren't all that great. So small changes in consumption can have big effects on growth. Um, so as a population, all sizes combined, we did see a bump. Um, but we looked at this a little bit closer for smaller size classes. So 10 to 15 inches, almost no difference between the two before pre-habitat and post-habitat. But the difference has really become stark at 15 to 20 inches and then above 20 inches. We got a huge effect. And, and the, the air bars are pretty big on this. The sample sizes are low, but um, it, was, it was pretty consistent. So the take-home from, his, from this is largemouth bass were simply eating more food, prey fish in this case, after we put the habitat in than before. So that, that's, that's what's really going on, at least the initial bump. And it was coincident or serendipity maybe. I, the uh, mild advisor, my master's advisor in Illinois, was working on similar types of things in small mesocosms, you know, little tiny ponds. And, and they were looking at natural brush and, and largemouth bass foraging efficiency, how how effective they are at capturing bluegill and other prey. And, and they, they found their results were well in line with this. The more habitat they had in the, in one of their mesocosms, the more bat or more bluegill that a bass would consume because they were better able to capture them. So there's, there's something about being in the proximity of structurally complex habitat that makes a bass a more effective predator. They're just better mm-hmm. able to capture and hold and consume prey fish in this case. Hmm. Not only did it make more prey fish, it also allowed the bass to eat those prey fish once that abundance increased. Is right? Exactly. Or, yeah. Yep. Okay. Wow, that's pretty cool. And that's what was stumping us before. That, that's kind of how we fell into the habitat world because I showed the before data. We had quite a few bluegill and quite a few shad, and they would kind of cycle through. But we had quite a, I mean, we had a lot of prey fish and 
vast growth rates before habitat still were horrible. And we'd looked at, we'd kind of eliminated everything else. So we finally got into the, the habitat world and that's what kickstarted this whole new line of research and, and it's, it's consumed me the last six years. It's been a blast, mm-hmm. but okay. Um, and the fun thing, we, we continue to work in this system and it's been a sustained response. So, you know, it is only one lake that, that we're intensively studying. We've repeated this now in a lot of other lakes, but this one's longer term. So we're about um, five or six years now past post-habitat. We've had floods, we've had droughts, we've had vegetation come back, um, you know, and cycle through as it does. Largemouth bass have remained consistent, you know, seasonally variable, 30 to 100 per hour of electrofishing. Um, they're, you know, one of the concerns was would they, would they have too much survival on them? Would they get really high density and start to stunt. And so far that hasn't happened, knock on wood. Mm-hmm. Um, but the coolest thing that, that I look at when I drop the boat in every, every fall, spring, summer is what are the bluegill doing? And they remain high. Our most recent samples, um, spring, fall of 2018, we just wrapped up a couple weeks ago down there. They're, they're still in this, this range of four, five, six, sometimes 800 bluegill per hour of electrofishing. So bluegill... And what's a normal... I mean, per hour of largemouth with electrofishing, what's an average Mendoza line of, of bluegill per, per hour? This will get me in trouble. with every, Everybody kind of has their own opinion. <clears throat> um, across latitudes, South Dakota, Minnesota, on down south, I, my management target for when I'm managing a high-quality bass fishery is I want to have largemouth bass catch rates uh, 50 and below you know, in the springtime, typically when we index their abundance and I want to have bluegill abundance, um, 200 per hour and higher is sort of a baseline. And then if I'm going for high quality or trophy, lake, I want to try to get 400 or more per hour of electrofishing. But those, those are my numbers. Um, there's regional standards, regional averages out there to look right. at. Well, yeah, we understand, but we're not holding you, holding <laughs> you to it. We were just trying to say, hey, man, you know, like, let's compare what is yeah. if a normal pond, a normal lake. And so, yeah. And, uh, and they, but if your managers, he needs to take a little bit of time of how much time he has his foot on that pedal because that abundance of fish is just as important as the size of fish, too. Uh, but that's a totally different talk somewhere else. I just wanted to, to make sure we hit on that. Sure, sure. Um, and, and, uh, pictures, you know, continue to, so we continue to see, you know, consistently every year, 10, 11, uh, the biggest fish we've seen so far is just under 12 pounds. Um, we did catch one girl down here in the bottom right. That was, uh, 25.1 inches long, the biggest, the longest bass I've ever measured. And That's she should have been about that. Yeah. She's huge. She should have weighed a lot more than she did, but I think she was getting old and senescing and just, um, going through a natural dying, you know, uh, process, but that, um, that fish he was could, ancient. <laughs> that that fish right there could eat a Yorkie. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it is the biggest mouth I've ever seen. It was something else. It, it's the coolest coolest fish I've ever electrofished. That was she was something. <laughs> That's neat. Okay, so, and then oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, uh, I was going to hit on you actually radio tag some fish yeah i want to hit on that but finish what you're going to say and then we'll we'll jump to that 
Well, and we'll, there's a, that's probably this, the topic for another talk, but we did a, we had four years of constant radio tagging. Um, so, and we targeted larger fish and, and the cool part was we had some fish that were tagged before we fixed habitat and their tag stayed after uh, effective post habitat, um, treatment, you know, improving habitat. So we got to see a change in behavior of those fish beforehand and after and then the, and just, just to let everybody understand what radio tag is, basically they take a, like a little wand, like a, that was on top of your house when you, when you had to move it to get your TV stations, they were, they actually walk out every day or very frequently and see where this bass is. And they have a tag that's, that's that's basically communicating with that and they could say okay as they drive through the lake they that right there is where the fish and that fish will move and they can track that particular fish with the transpondence to where it goes throughout the lake yeah yep yeah we do we actually do open cavity surgery on the fish to implant it inside the the visceral cavity by the stomach and and uh it's, it's pretty wild pretty wild Anyway, wow. you, you followed this fish before habitat, right? Yeah. Yep. Several fish before and after. And, and it was neat that some of the fish were really large movers and some were short movers. This fish, uh, you know, one of the red shirted picture of this fish. We, we, I've actually caught her three times, um, tagged her before her home range. She lives in about an acre and a half of water in a hundred acre lake in the corner of a dam next to just the most perfect little piece of cut grass clump. You can imagine near tons of, she's just got the great home. Um, <laughs> she, and she, she doesn't move. She, um, and she was six, six pounds. I think when we first put a radio tag in her, we caught her again in this picture. She was just about nine pounds and we caught her the next year and she was way over 10 pounds. Um, okay. Figured out how to make a good living, but her, her life is in a really tiny chunk of the lake. And we have other fish that routinely would move the entire length of the lake. The lake's about a mile long, you know, they'd zigzag across and they do, they would move a mile down and a mile back plus zigzags in a 24 hour period. So just some crazy movements. And, and we summarized all those data and, and looked at some of the behaviors, but, but basically after we put habitat in the, the big movers kept moving a lot but now instead of just randomly going around their home range, they would, they would swim, they would, they would swim from structure to structure to structure. So if they had three fish cities in their home range, they would spend a lot of their time going either on those or, or moving between those, those three structures. So it really changed how they used their home range, but um, yeah, fascinating stuff. All right. Well, and then they were just basically going to that, fish habitat station and then or city is what you called it and mm -hmm. then trying to forge a little bit and then move across it were they actually not moving as much when they those or they when you added it all together they were still going the same distance the the bass that we'd have tagged before and after use the same they moved about the same amount use the same amount of area their core okay. kind of their core home range but they changed how they moved within that range. You know? Yeah, it, we we really expected the home ranges to go down with better habitat. Yep. You know, they didn't. We got an increase in growth, but it wasn't because they moved less. Um, it's right. because they ate more. Well, um, the, oh no, that's all right. I get it. I cut you off, but uh, 
I want to conclude with the, uh, if you go back to the first image with the Grand Lake with the bathymetrics, mm-hmm. just as now we understand what you're putting out, what the fish are, this is where you put the fish cities, right? Right. And, and s- some of those red dots are bigger than others. Are there's two fish cities there? Uh, a couple of them, we doubled up fish cities just to see what the, the size of the habitat would have on it. Um, and those, the dots are actually precise GPS traces, the outline of them, um, right along the edge. And we figured, I think for impact purposes that you can extend that line about five meters beyond all these lines, but, but yeah, uh, so we, there was some, some work out of, out of Texas looking at brush piles and the size, shape and configuration. And one of the the interesting results they found in there is really no, no, it didn't really matter how big the structure was. If they went out and they saw one big, usually a female bass on that structure, they wouldn't see any medium sized bass. They'd probably see some small bass, but they wouldn't see any, you know, a little bit smaller, medium size. So that's, you know, and we, we kind of looked at that too. We didn't quantify it very well, but anecdotally observationally, you know, we saw, on that giant complex of structure, if we'd see one big fish, we would, we would rarely see other big fish around them. Um, so th- some of this work, if doing these in the future now, I would never put um, two fish cities together. I'd always spread them apart because you have then double your chances to get a big fish to sit on them. If they're going to be, um, if they're going to experience, if they're going to display that type of, of behavior. So and we've really taken that and, and just, taken the same amount of habitat, but just made it in smaller, um, discrete chunks. If that mm. makes sense. Yep. And then I'm going to get asked about the one in the middle there. You have in the deeper range look, I think it's probably out front of their dock right there. Yeah. Did that hold mm. just as many fish as a shallows or the was depth important? This one was actually, this is the, this is a little, it was almost an Island. They've got cypress trees on top of here. Um, mm. This before it's, it's, you know, really sharp break, a sharp drop off, um, narrow between these banks, the wind blows this direction. So I'm sure current moves through there. This was already a really high, highly attractive spot for bass because we had two years of telemetry before we put habitat in. So we knew the areas of high use and areas of low use. So one of the things we did with this area up here was pretty low use. So we said, well, if we put a habitat up there, will we get more fish to use it? And, and the answer is, Yes, we we routinely go up there now and and, and uh, find more fish. Um, so that did help increase the use on some of those areas. But um, yeah, does that answer, answer your question? Yeah. What about depth? Did it matter? Um, no, not really. Uh, all the structures. I I shouldn't say that. We all the structures covered from about two, three feet deep on the shallowest part out to um, ideally we'd get out to about 12 feet of water for those really tall structures. But in the upper end of the lake, um, you know, there's no above this line, there's nothing deeper than about nine, 10 feet. So, you know, we'd go out as far as we could, but we, you know, our deepest spots might be only seven or eight feet. So um, really didn't see, I, I guess I should, I should say we really didn't design this to answer that question because we tried to cover from shallow to deep at each site to standardize it. Mm. I gotcha. Interesting. Well, any closing thoughts? 
Well, I had one more example um, of how to do these. Oh, did you? Okay. So I thought I'd throw this up there for folks yeah. to follow. So here's one. Here's we've we've taken this this design now. We 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 put it all over the place. Um, here's a project we did last summer up in um, southern Kansas. Our, and it's a gravel pit. It's a great great place to work because we can see a lot of the stuff happening. This gravel pit was an absolute habitat desert, um, like a lot of lakes nowadays. There was there was one sunken sailboat out in the middle of it that, that was about the only thing for structure. Um, so we we're starting with a blank slate. So we, you know, the way we calculate this, we go in um, with GIS and we we trace the shoreline and you know it's a twenty three acre lake and there's twenty two thousand and fifty yards of shoreline. So we say we want to impact 20% of that shoreline. So I know I need to make an effect on about 410 yards of it. So each of the kind of the newer cities we have impacts 30 to 40 yards. So you multiply that out and, you know, we know we needed 13 to 14 fish cities hmm. um, in this lake. And and this is lake. We also started adding um, cedar trees. We're mixing natural and artificial. And I think that's, really important thing to do. But I wanted to throw this up there because I think this is probably the place I know before I started working in it and what I see around the country, a lot of people have great intentions and great ideas of doing habitat and putting structures out. But I would argue that the vast majority of them are doing it on much too small of a scale. Mm -hmm. You look at all the stars here are the locations of an individual fish city. And each fish city in this case is I think 10 pieces of artificial habitat and uh, several pieces of, of cedars all together. So we might have 25, 30 individual pieces of habitat all in one giant complex replicated 14 times across that lake. Um, so that's, that's the scale it takes to get enough habitat in there to, to make a bump on that population. Right. Wow. Yeah, when you... Actually, so how many, I guess you have it here though, is uh, on that one of those fish cities, it's, I mean, take a guess, how, is it 20 by 20, 30 by 30 in, in feet? Uh, it's it's more in yards. So it's, uh, if we look at a buffer around the outside, it's each one of them is going to impact that 30 to 40 yards. So, okay. you know, and it, and it has to do with how close or how far apart you place them. You know, we we like to put a little bit of space between each piece um, mm-hmm. of the artificial. Then we might come in and cram a cedar tree down between them. But to start off, we, we spread it out. Um, so if you measure the, the outside of that coverage area, you'd probably impact about 40 yards of shoreline. That's how we look at it. Wow. Yeah. I would say majority of people that are trying to do ha- habitat are grossly undersized on the size that they're trying. I've seen it. It's, it's, it's astounding. When you when you put all this stuff together on the shoreline before you go throw it in the lake, it's it's astounding. It it covers it looks like it's a mound of habitat, but then when you go out and actually drop it in the lake, it really doesn't cover that much. Hmm. You know. Right. That much area. Yeah. Right. And then but if I see this guy's dock here at the gravel pit, I mean, you didn't put anything out in front of it. So why didn't you choose to do that? Well, we we came back in later, and we actually filled this cove up um, oh. with, I think we probably put about 15 pieces of artificial and 15, 20 cedar trees. Because this quickly, after we did all this in the cold water, 
And then as soon as it started warming up, we realized this was probably a really important spawning cove. It was shallow. It was getting was warming up a little bit quicker than the rest of the lake, kind of protected back there. Mm-hmm. So we absolutely filled that up with habitat. Um, and this dock, um, they don't. It's kind of high off the water. They don't do much fishing off of it. So oh. we really didn't do much of anything. Um, yeah, the most angling that's going to happen on this lake will be out of a boat. So we didn't have okay. to worry about the the dock piece. But if there is a dock, the way I I deal with it is I'll do the fish cities you know, pretty much independent. I'll put one fish city right at the edge of casting distance away from the dock, but then I'll hang some individual pieces underneath the dock and, and do maybe a couple more on the outside. But you don't want to have zones where you know that it's open and know that it's full of habitat for novice anglers and teaching people. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put more in around the dock, but it's usually kind of a separate thought process from the rest of the lake. Right. right. And that's where the difference between habitat and the tractors are. So yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Good. So is this all we have right here? Uh this is it for that one. It sounds like we need to talk more about bass behavior on the next talk, but um, yep. um That's for sure. but yeah, man, oh, I appreciate you coming. And uh having cutting edge science with PWNRA is pretty awesome. I mean, uh we're really blessed to to have professionals like you because there's not many scholastics that really are focusing towards you know private water resource and to have somebody with your talent somebody that's actually excited to work along development of private water resources is 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 awesome so i have to thank you with that and uh i appreciate you being here and taking the time to to explain all this cool stuff thank you matt yeah we're there's we're a dying breed people that are actually working and interested in even just reservoirs in general. So I appreciate you this for having Bobcast, me on. This is, this is great. And hopefully it helps Private people Water, out. Natural Resources Association. Thank you. A nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners in the water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, Jump to pwnra.org and click. And by all means, make sure that this continues in a future podcast, education, video. Become a member. If nothing else, there's tons of platforms. YouTube, Facebook. Just hit like. Send a comment. We appreciate everything you can do.